1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Buckle up. It could be a wild day of trading with trillions. Yeah, trillions of options set to expire. President Biden looking to reset relationships with Saudi Arabia, walking a political and diplomatic tightrope over his sit-down with MBS, Leva Croft lays out the president's unofficial hunt for oil. Speaking of two huge U.S. oil and gas players coming together, former Secretary of Energy Dan Briette is one of the key players in that deal and is here to talk about it. China narrowly avoiding a second quarter contraction as its zero COVID policies take a real toll on its economy and its people. And shares of Pinterest popping onward a big hedge fund may have its sights set on the company. It is all happening on this Friday, July 15th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. And as always, welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to it and see how your markets look on this Friday. And we are seeing futures, well, not doing a whole lot. They are very little changed to maybe slightly higher. At least they are in the green maybe show the markets a little bit of relief, and we could use some relief. The Dow futures up 76, NASDAQ futures up 42. The major averages coming into today down all week. The S&P 500 down nearly 3% in just the last five days, pretty much wiping out all of most of last week's gains. And it could be a very volatile day of trading today. It has to do with options, and we will tell you about it more coming up In the 530 half hour also checking the bond market and we are seeing yields actually come down just above 2.9 percent right now off that red hot inflation number. So keep an eye there on bonds and energy. Oil is slightly lower off the close, but it is a couple of bucks above two days ago. Oil right now at 95 and change. And of course, President Biden has a big meeting later today in Saudi Arabia with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. We will give you more on that coming up with Halima Croft in moments, and some new news to report now around Germany's energy crisis and American natural gas. CNBC confirmed last night that the U.S. Embassy and the German government will hold a combined LNG conference in Berlin on Tuesday, July 26th. Executives from a number of American gas companies have been invited, and the meeting will be co-hosted by the American Embassy and the German Federal Ministry for Economic and Climate Action. All this as Germany grows increasingly desperate for American natural gas to try to replace volumes lost to Russia, especially the temporary shutdown of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and growing fears that it may not come back online as planned on July 22nd. That is next Friday, by the way, and will be a big market event for Germany, for Europe, and really global stock markets. Stay tuned with more on that. For now, let's go around the world. Juliana Tadelbaum is in our London newsroom, and she has got a look at the early trade and key headlines happening out of Europe. Juliana, good morning.
2: Brian, good morning. Well, here in Europe, we're off to a pretty decent start, a rebound underway. After the stock 600 sold off yesterday, we actually had a pretty risk off session. The recession fears mounting even further, and Italy getting thrust into the spotlight. Right now, Italy in political limbo. Um, Here's a look for you. The FTSE MIB over in Italy bouncing back about 1.6% today after falling nearly 3.5% yesterday. There's a look for you at European bond yields. Again, keeping a very close eye on Italy. This morning, the 10 year trading around 3.3%. We saw a significant move higher in bond yields yesterday and a s- widening in the spread between Italian and German bonds. Today, a little bit more stabilization with yields actually coming down. The situation being President um, uh, Mattarella in Italy rejected Prime Minister Mario Draghi's attempt to resign. Now, the political way forward remains very uncertain. And it comes, of course, at a time when the situation in Europe, economically speaking, was. Already very precarious, the European Central Bank getting ready to raise interest rates rates next week. So this complicates the situation even further and adding a, a certainly a number of jitters to the European story. But, Brian, right now, European equity markets are trading higher.
1: All right. Good looking. A little bit of green on the screen there. We like it. Juliana, thank you very much. Have a great day and a good weekend. All right. Right now, let's get a check on some of your morning's top headlines. Contessa Brewer is in this morning with those. Good morning, Contessa.
3: Hello there, Brian. Yeah, China's economy, as you mentioned, is facing a sharp slowdown in the second quarter, reporting GDP growth of just 0.4% from a year ago. That's lower than the 1% forecast, and it marks the slowest rate of growth since the pandemic began. This pullback comes as leaders in Beijing doubled down on a rather controversial zero COVID approach. Back here at home, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and former Vice Chair Richard Clarida have been cleared of any wrongdoing over questionable trading activity. The central bank's Office of Inspector General ruled that trades by the two from 2019 to last year did not break any rules or laws. Inquiries into trades from other former Fed officials are still ongoing. Shares of Pinterest are surging on a new report that Elliott Management has taken a more than 9% stake in the social media company, according to The Wall Street Journal. Elliott has been in talks with Pinterest on unspecified matters over the past several weeks. Shares are down more than 40% year-to-date as Pinterest struggles to retain users, but as you can see, up more than 14% in the early trading uh, Elliott has previous experience getting involved with struggling social media companies. In 2020, Twitter reached a deal with Elliott and Silver Lake, giving the firm seats on its board and initiating a $2 billion share repurchase program. We'll keep an eye on those shares today for sure, Brian.
1: I'm so disappointed, Contessa, knowing you. You didn't say the interest in Pinterest. I mean, that's that's very unbrewer-esque.
3: It's it's still early for me. I need, I need to get my first cup of coffee down, then maybe I'll be a little sharper.
1: It, it, it's, it's not just early for you, my friend. It's early for all of us. Or late, <laughs> if you just maybe stayed up. Sometimes on Friday, I'm not going to lie, that. just stay up and I end my day with the show. Why not? Right? It's more fun that way. <laughs> Tessa, we'll see you in a few minutes. Lived, living Thank dangerously. You. Yeah. That's a good, the Year of Living... Good movie, by the way. Mel Gibson, 1981. All right. Now to this, and a meeting that no one seems to want the president to take, but ultimately the one that Biden knows he has to make. That is going to Saudi Arabia and meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The White House is playing down the oil aspect of the meeting, suggesting instead it is more about a resetting of the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Remember, President Biden has called Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah state. But the administration is highly worried about oil and gas prices and inflation, and it seems obvious this meeting is also about hoping the Saudis might put more oil onto the market to try to bring down gas prices. Let's talk more now about this. Joining us, Halima Croft of RBC Capital Markets, CNBC contributor, and all around somebody that knows probably more about this than anybody that we could talk to in the world. So Halima, love getting, uh, having you get up early for us. Thank you very much. I know the administration is is trying to tamp down the oil. It's not about oil. When everyone knows, it's about oil. How much about oil is this meeting, Halima?
4: I mean, this energy crisis was clearly the catalyst for this trip to Saudi Arabia. I mean, yes, the administration is saying that it's about a broad strategic reset. It's about issues like Yemen, Iran. Potential path to normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They're taking a flight from Israel to Jeddah and Saudi Arabia. But again, the ask is really for help on energy. And I would say it's not just about additional barrels onto the market. They are going to need help come December when the European embargo of Russian oil kicks in. They're going to need to actually have more Middle Eastern oil go to Europe. They need to have this game of musical barrels. They're trying to get a price cap plan work where basically you could still send Russian barrels to Asia, but discounted. They need Middle Eastern barrels going into Europe. So they need more barrels and they need those barrels to move to Europe to make these Russian sanctions and the price cap plan work.
1: And that is so key. December 5th is really the day the full sanctions kick in. This is going to be such a huge moment, but do the Saudis, in your analysis, have the extra barrels to put on the market, and if they do, can they do it under the current OPEC agreement?
4: I mean, the Saudis are saying that they can do 12 million barrels. That's in their ramp-up prospectus. They've actually hit apparently 12,3 on you know, on one day or two days. But the question is, do they actually want to deplete all their spare capacity right now? Do they essentially want to run down all the shock absorbers in the oil system? And so I think the status are going to be very incremental in terms of how they bring additional barrels onto the market. The OPEC agreement actually extends through December. So I think they will try to find a way to do it within the current OPEC plus framework. They don't want to disrupt this arrangement. They don't want to kick Russia out of the organization. They want them staying at the head of the table. So I think they're going to try to find a way to add some barrels, but do it in an incremental manner and keep the whole gang together when it comes to OPEC.
1: There have been reports that part of this meeting is to kind of split the relationship up, Halima, between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Are they going to be able to do that? Do you think the president can kind of get Saudi Arabia to come more to the United States and Europe and say, you know, why do you have Russia in OPEC plus? It's time to ditch them, leave them over here. They are the pariah state and come more to the West.
4: I mean, I think the United States is trying to fill what they see as a growing vacuum in the region. And they're worried that Russia and China are filling that vacuum. The Saudis have made it, really clear that they are not kicking russia out of opec the uae has made it very clear that russia is going to remain at the top of the opec plus table so for the united states the ask is really going to have to be look we want to show that we are still a major player in this region we want to be your strategic partner and we need additional help when it comes to energy i don't think that they are going to be able to achieve a break between opec and russia at this stage
1: You know, we're showing the price of oil on the board, Halima, and it's kind of funny because I hear all these headlines about, you know, some on this network about oil coming down. It's at 96. I mean, going up, 96 was high. Suddenly, 96 is low. OPEC is selling oil at 104. How much do you think the paper market, what we're showing on the board right now, the futures contracts and the physical market actually buying oil to use are growing apart? right now? It seems like they're very different markets in some ways.
4: Well, I mean, certainly what has driven down this market is concerns about recession, rate hikes, concern about slowdowns in China because of no COVID policies. But the question is, I think this market still, from a physical standpoint, does look tight. And I think the question is going to be in the back half of the year. You mentioned December 5th. What are we potentially looking at in terms of disruption from Russia? We actually have not had major Russian supply disruptions because of this war. Barrels are going to India. But on December 5th, not only do we have this embargo on seaborne imports of Russian oil into Europe, we also have these very serious sanctions that will prevent European insurance companies, UK companies from underwriting insurance contracts. That means that those barrels are not going to easily move to Asia either. So we could be really looking at much more serious Russian supply disruptions. And that's where this price cap plan comes in, because officials in Washington are saying that if they don't get the price cap plan to work, those sanctions are still going to kick in. So we could be looking at much more serious supply disruptions out of Russia.
1: But so I I know we got to go and I Halima. But but if if when the sanctions kick in, what's going to happen? If the Russians keep pumping, we're going to have huge amounts of extra oil on the market. Or do they stop producing and suddenly we have a worse shortage? What is the more likely outcome?
4: I mean, this is where the price cap plan becomes so important to this administration because if Russia cannot sell to Europe and these insurance sanctions and shipping sanctions kick in, it's going to be hard yeah. for Russia to move those barrels to Asia. And so you could actually be looking at a significant multi million barrel hole in this market. That's why the administration really wants a price cap plan to work. They still want those barrels moving to Asia.
1: And they, need a, they might need the price cap because you could you could make yes. the argument for $150 oil because everybody's competing for the same barrels. Wow, it's getting uh, even tighter than we thought. Halima Croft, as always, my friend, thank you. Have a great thank day. Thank you for having weekend. me. Always, you know that. All right, still so much ahead this hour. Former Energy Secretary Dan Briette on the major deal between two U.S. oil and gas players what it might mean for Europe's energy crisis and America's push for more energy independence. Plus, more on Europe's pain and how debt default fears are now growing. We'll show you that. And then more big bank results on deck after a dismal start to the quarterly numbers from JP Morgan. We'll dive more into the bank sector and whether there may be some signs of hope out there. We've got a lot more to do. Grab a coffee, it's 515. And we are back on WEX right after this.
3: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over fifty.
2: So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny! Or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools
1: all right welcome back and good friday morning let us talk stocks because it has been another rough few days We're now down to the S&P and Dow five days in a row. We've wiped out all of last week's gains. Now, right now, we are in the green. Dow futures up just about 100, but we're not up by too much. The NASDAQ, by the way, down more than 3% just since Monday. So let's talk about where we may go from here. Joining us now is Apex Financial President Lee Baker. Lee, it's good to have you back on the program. Happy Friday, my friend. I mean, listen, last week was what a head fake. I mean, markets rose. People are talking about, okay, is the, is the bottom in? Clearly it was not. What do you see? I'm not going to ask you where the bottom is. Nobody knows. But sure. what, do you see a catalyst about what may signal a bottom lease? Is there something macro you're kind of looking for to know? All right, this is about as bad as it's going to get?
5: Yeah, you know, we're looking at all sorts of things. But as you said, there's no magic indicator that I'm aware of that says, yeah, this is really the bottom uh, we, we've had a very rough first half of the year, uh, bear markets. Um, but what we've got right now still seems to indicate that things might not get a whole heck of a lot worse. You know, uh, we saw the numbers from Amazon Prime yesterday, uh, huge sales. Uh, I think the biggest ever, uh, that leads me to believe the American consumer at least is in still pretty good shape. So, um, don't know that we're 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 at a bottom, but I don't think things are terribly bad. I mean, if let let's, let's it's Friday,
1: let's I like to call it Opportunity Fridays here. Let's be optimistic, and if we want to be optimistic, Absolutely. I would say this: JP, why not? Let's do it, especially at this hourly. JP <laughs> Morgan's to. numbers and their guidance were pretty miserable yesterday. I mean, it was not a lot positive. In their numbers, and yet the market fell, but not by much. the Dow wasn't down a thousand. so I mean right. do you
5: take some hope maybe in that I, I absolutely do you know the fact that you can have a lot of these sort of bad things come out um, and not have the markets overreact I think is a good sign uh, you know I'm optimistic when we look at some of the data. Hey, when, when you've got six months down, historically, you know, uh, markets tend to go up about 17 percent on average the following six months. So there's some hope there. Uh, now, B of A did change their projection, and, and that would indicate another five percent down from uh, where we were earlier in the week. Uh, but there is some optimism because in general, we don't see continued downward movement uh, this long, at least as far as we've already had a, a pretty rough six months to begin with.
1: Yeah. What is what is to you, Lee, the next big catalyst? Is it Europe's crisis? Is it the Fed? Is it inflation? Jobs numbers? It, it, I mean, what, what's going to turn this thing around ultimately?
5: I, I think I'm going to make, if I'm going to make a bet, I'm going to make sort of that twin bet on inflation and the Fed. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, the 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 various Fed presidents come out. And are we going to get a 75 uh, later in the month or is it going to be 100 uh, bips later in the month? Uh, What can they do to really tamp down inflation? Now, I will say this. I think the odds that the Federal Reserve is able to get to that 2% target anytime soon are frankly quite slim. Uh, I don't want to say slim and none, but I I do think it's a pretty skinny uh, chance that that, that's able to happen. So I'm looking at, uh, you know, what happens with the Fed uh in in their battle, if you will, that arm wrestling contest that they've got going on uh with inflation
1: yeah, I'm kind of in that camp with you i mean uh, there there's a lot of ifs there's a lot of buts there's a lot of hope out there and and maybe hope is not a strategy, but it's it's all we got at this point Lee Baker Apex Financial Lee appreciate you getting up early. have a great day and a Absolutely. good weekend will do, man we'll see you soon. Thank take you. Care. see you again all right, take care. all right, you too. All right, still on deck, a potential major blow to President Biden's domestic agenda as one top lawmaker looks to pull the plug on both climate and tax talks. Stick around.
2: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.
1: Outside the world of money and business for a moment, get a check on some of the key headlines that are happening on this Friday morning. Francis Rivera is in New York with those. Good morning, Francis.
6: Hi, Brian. Good Friday morning to you. There are new developments this morning in the January 6th investigation. According to a letter obtained by NBC News, the Secret Service erased text messages from January 6, 2021, and from the previous day. A letter to two House committees from the Homeland Security Inspector General says those messages were deleted after being requested as part of an investigation into the attack on the Capitol. The Secret Service issued a statement saying that the insinuation that the messages were deleted maliciously is false. The agency says before any inspection was opened, they had begun to reset their mobile phones to factory settings as part of a pre-planned system migration. One week after pleading guilty to drug charges, WNBA superstar Brittany Griner was back in a Russian court. Some of her Russian teammates appeared as character witnesses as her defense appeals for leniency. Well, now that she has pleaded guilty to drug charges. The team's director told the court that she was an outstanding player and played a big role in the club and Russian basketball. A SpaceX capsule is barreling towards the International Space Station right now. It is the company's 25th commercial resupply mission to the ISS. The Falcon 9 rocket blasted off, carrying nearly 6,000 pounds of supplies and equipment. It is expected to dock at the station tomorrow. So for a Friday, Brian, you're up to date with your news headlines. send it back to you.
1: I love all the space stuff. It kind of brings everybody. It's a, it's, it's a nonpartisan issue. Space travel, the telescope we talked about the other day, Francis.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: More space stories, right? Am I right?
6: And they'll keep coming. They will keep oh, nice. coming the way we're going.
1: All right. I think I speak for everybody, Francis, when I say live long and prosper. Thank Here you. Here <laughs> Such a dork. All right. Still on deck former Energy Secretary Dan Brulette is standing by talking a major deal between two U.S. oil and gas players, Sempra and ConocoPhillips, what it could mean for us and what it might mean for Europe. And a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. Check it out. It's a good show, I'm told. We're back right after this. Could be a bumpy ride to an already rocky trading week with more than a trillion dollars of options set to expire. Futures they are higher ahead of the open. A major deal in the American energy sector. Former Secretary of Energy Dan Brulette is one of the key players in that deal and is here to talk about it. And Amazon reportedly looking to turn down heat from regulators by potentially pulling the plug on its private label arm. I'll tell you about that and more on this Friday, July 15th. This is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Friday morning, everybody. Hope you're having a great start or finish to your day. If you're watching from Asia, hi, have a cocktail for us, because it's only 5:30 a.m. here on the east coast of the United States. And right now, let's get more in the markets and your money. And we are seeing futures a little bit in the green right now. Not a lot, but we are up. Dow futures up 90. Hey, after this week, we'll take what we can get. Now Things are pretty calm right now, but it could get a little more volatile because it is a huge options expiration day. Per Goldman Sachs, about $1.9 trillion with a T of optional options and notional value of options are set to expire today. That includes about $925 billion of S&P 500 linked contracts and $395 billion in derivatives and a lot of other stuff. Nearly $2 trillion in the notional value of options set to expire today. So right now it's calm. But it could be, not saying it will, but it could be a volatile day for the equity markets. By the way, that'd be par for the course. It's been a volatile year, although most of that volatility, of course, has been. On the downside, bond yields, they're not moving at all. We're seeing bond yields just above 2.9% right now. Yields basically back to the level they were. In late April. At this point, the bond market effectively has not moved. Hard to believe, but it has not moved in three months. Oil has moved and it's moved down. Let's hit oil. Oil right now is maybe a little bit higher, but that's off or a little bit lower off the close. We're at 95.94 per barrel here. Brent crude at 99.69. But of course, as we talked about yesterday, OPEC is selling oil at 104 a barrel. So what you see on the screen, the paper contracts, and the physical market are kind of very different things right now. All this as President Biden is in Saudi Arabia as part of a bid to reset relationships with the Saudis after calling them a pariah state on the campaign trail. Now he's going to try to get that to put more oil on the global markets, as even with the price declines, and the price of oil and gas, they're a huge issue for inflation, which is a huge issue for the Biden administration and a huge issue in the upcoming midterm elections. By the way, speaking of energy, the price of energy and the falling Euro, they are starting to cause ripple effects well beyond just inflation. I wanna show you this. Remember credit default swaps? We talked about them in 08, 09, 2011 Greece. We're gonna start talking about them again. Credit default swaps, if you forget, they're basically the insurance on sovereign debt. And if they go up, it means the risk People are placing on markets, maybe Italy, not paying their sovereign debt is going up. This is Italy's five-year credit default swaps. And you can see or hear, if you listen to the podcast, it going higher. What does that mean? It means that the financial markets are seeing more risk in Italy's government debt. We're showing you Italy. We could show you Greece. It's up as well. These are not crisis levels just yet, but it is something to keep an eye on. Credit default swaps for sovereign debt in Italy and Greece, Germany and others. They're on the rise once again. History may not always repeat itself, but it does rhyme. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's other top headlines. Once again, our friend Contessa Brewer.
3: Hi there, Brian, good morning to you. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin reportedly is ready to derail President Biden's agenda on climate and taxes. Manchin is a pivotal vote in the Democrats' efforts to pass a bill Sources tell NBC News that Manchin, a Democrat himself, has told leaders he will not support those provisions in the new spending measure. Instead, he reportedly is committed to a filibuster-proof bill that tackles drug pricing and a two-year extension of Affordable Care Act subsidies. This move really throws a wrench in lengthy negotiations between Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on those climate and tax provisions. Crypto lender Celsius owes its users roughly $4.7 billion. It's according to new documents from the bankruptcy proceedings. The money due Celsius users makes up the vast majority of the company's $5.5 billion in total liabilities. The CEO says Celsius plans to deal with the shortfall partly by using newly minted bitcoins from its mining facility and also by selling assets and seeking third-party investments. Amazon is reportedly reducing its selection of private label items. This is according to the Wall Street Journal. The move to scale back offerings of the company's own brands partly due to disappointing sales for many of the items. But Amazon reportedly has held talks about possibly exiting the private label business entirely to alleviate regulatory pressure. The company's faced criticism from lawmakers and others that it gives advantages to its own brands over other products sold by vendors on its site. You can see that the shares of Amazon have moved up half a percent in extended trading. Can you imagine how big a job this would be? Amazon has almost... Uh, A quarter million of these private label products under some 45 different brands, Brian, according to the journal. And so winding all of that down seems to be a Herculean task.
1: I have no idea how they would do it. I mean, it's always like you go on to buy something. It's like we recommend Amazon basic. You need an iPhone charger. Don't buy that. Buy the Amazon basic. Right. It's always there. Yeah. And always crazy Mm -hmm. other brands. I think is so... and, I,
3: and I think that's part of what is giving the regulators some pause for concern.
1: Contessa, is that real brick behind you or is that like a fake brick like TV wall?
3: Uh, 200 years old.
1: 200. It's almost as old as I feel right now at this hour. Contessa Brewer, <laughs> thank you.
3: Yeah, Bye.
1: <laughs> Don't blame me. I voted for John Tyler. Contessa, thank you. All right, there was a huge deal in American oil and gas announced yesterday. ConocoPhillips buying 30% of Sempra Energy's big Port Arthur, Texas LNG facility, one that is slated to begin construction in 2025. This deal will lock in natural gas export capability for Sempra, and it will lock in a supply deal for ConocoPhillips. Much of it has to do with Europe's growing energy crisis and... America's natural gas industries rush to build out production and export infrastructure to fill the growing supply gap. Dan Brulette is the president of Sempra Infrastructure, by the way, key architect of the deal, and also recently served as the secretary of energy. So a real pleasure to have him on. Secretary Brulette, thank you very much for coming on uh, CNBC and getting up early for us. What does this deal between Sempra and ConocoPhillips mean? Why do it? Where does it go from here?
0: Well, Brian, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. This is an exciting uh, opportunity for America. It's an exciting opportunity, obviously, for our two countries to build what could potentially be one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, LNG export facility in the Western Hemisphere. And the importance of that cannot be overstated at this moment in time, given the situation in Europe, given their desire to divorce themselves from Russian gas. in, In order for us, America, for others, to fill that gap, we must build this type of infrastructure and this particular arrangement allows us to begin the conversation with conoco phillips to hopefully reach a, a final agreement uh, to build a facility that's going to have an enormous amount of capacity potentially on these first two trains approximately 13 million tons of gas can flow through these first two trains which we call phase one and it comes from a supplier like conoco phillips uh, that is well known in the industry has a very long history in the natural gas world, and frankly, a very long history in the LNG business. The ConocoPhillips, for those who are unaware, uh, produced some of the first LNG cargoes to Asia, for instance, way back in the late 60s and early 70s. So a very strong player in this market. Sempra has its own very long history in this marketplace building these types of uh, facilities, and we're very excited about the opportunity that's been presented to us.
1: You may not know on the contract side, Dan, but I will ask anyway, I mean, is this LNG slated for Asia? Is it slated for Europe?
0: Well, you know, Brian, the way this works is that, you know, U.S. LNG doesn't come with destination clauses. So we don't know exactly where it's going to end up in the marketplace. It'll be up to the people who take the gas from this facility. Once it's on the open market, they'll decide where it goes. But we would anticipate that uh, much of this gas will end up in Europe, just given the strong demand there. And again, their desire to divorce themselves and become less dependent upon Mr. Putin and Russian gas.
1: Let's talk more about that, Mr. Secretary, because I want to put your former hat on as Secretary of Energy. Obviously, we're seeing what's going on. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline, it is down for 10 days of maintenance slated to come back online uh, at the end of next week. Uh, What is Europe's gas situation right now and what happens If the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is not resumed next Friday or is resumed at far diminished capacity.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the immediate impact will be that there'll be uh, less gas going into stores, storages all throughout Europe. So not only Germany and France and other places, there'll be less gas uh, going to other parts of Europe. So that's going to be an immediate concern as we move into the winter months. Um, you know, if if this is a persistent slowdown or this, you know, the slowdown uh, continues into the wintertime, then Europeans are going to have some really hard choices to make. The decisions are going to be between keeping the lights on and keeping the heat on one or the other. They will not have enough gas to do both. And that's a real challenge for policymakers, but uh, a heartbreaking situation for consumers as well.
1: It is. And it seems sort of like, we're coming to this game of chicken between Europe, the U.S., and Vladimir Putin. Those full sanctions kick in on December 5th. I imagine the Russians are not happy about that. Now they've got this, this pipeline offline. Ultimately, Mr. Secretary, how do you see this playing out? What's, what's the end game? Where's the relief here? Is it U.S. <laughs> LNG?
0: Well, I, I think it might be. It's certainly a part of the answer. There, there's no question about that, Brian. Again, that's why we're uh, excited about the opportunity to work with Conoco on a, on a gas supply. Uh, and we'll talk about that more later. But look, in the in the near term, you know, Mr. Putin has opened what is in effect a two front war. So obviously, he has a kinetic war happening in ukraine he has also an economic war that he is imposing upon the european continent and perhaps you could extend that to other parts of the world so it's a two-front war and i don't see this ending anytime in the near future Uh, it, it will be important for the united states for the rest of the world the g7 nations just met to come together and to begin a process to end this war in ukraine and in that sense we'll find some economic normality But in the interim, we're going to continue to build infrastructure like we just talked about uh, in Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, This facility is is capable, as I mentioned earlier, of roughly 13, the first two trains, roughly 13 million tons. And uh, the arrangement that we have with Conoco is to begin the negotiations on the first 5 million tons with Conoco, but we've also worked deals with your German utilities like RWE for about 2 million tons. So we're working closely with the Europeans uh, to ensure that they have a safe, secure, reliable source of gas.
1: How much quickly, how much that gap can we fill? With we Germany? can fill a
0: large portion of it. We can fill a large portion of it, but we will not fill the amount that, uh, you know, they're dependent upon. What comes through that Nord Stream pipeline is just an enormous amount of gas, roughly 40 DCM comes through that pipeline. So very difficult to replace that in the near term.
1: But we are working, trying at least you know, kind of a race against time and resources to get that done. with this deal between Sempra and ConocoPhillips, a big part of the long-term strategy. Uh, Dan Burlett, we really appreciate you getting up early and coming on the program, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Brian. All
1: right. Oh, thank you. All right. On deck. Gearing up for more big bank earnings, but our weak numbers out of J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley? More sign of bigger trouble ahead for the sector. We'll dive into the numbers what they mean for markets and your money with Worldwide Exchange Returns. All right, welcome and welcome back. Earnings season rolling on. Big banks, they are the big focus on Wall Street. Citigroup and Wells Fargo are reporting today before the bell and investors hoping for better results after numbers out of JP Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley worse than expected declines in things in their second quarter numbers as well as dividends and Profits bring in Stephen Bigger, Director of Financial Institutions Research at Argus Research. Stephen, good, good to have you back on the program. I mean, I, I kind of feel like J.P. Morgan in particular's numbers were like a punch in the gut. I mean, we knew they might not be great, but kind of woke everybody up. What are you expecting today and going forward with some of the big banks?
7: Oh, good morning, Brian. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I would characterize it a bit different. The miss was about 4% uh, on consensus, so not, not a terrible miss, and, and virtually all of it was investment banking, which we knew was going to be weak. On the positive side, uh, we saw uh, an upward guide on net interest income, 56 to $58 billion, uh, and that, I think, bodes very well for uh, the upcoming regional bank earnings in particular, uh, that more aggressive Fed is going to uh, really help uh, net interest income. Uh, for these uh, regional banks in particular. So I think that's a good uh, crossery going forward.
1: How how much of a difference then, you know, we always like, we like to use the term, Stephen, banks on CNBC, the, the banks. Banks are very different things, like saying animals. There's giraffes and there's sharks. They're both animals, right? But they're very different things. Regional banks are not trading currencies, commodities, crypto, whatever. How much different are the big Wall Street players, the JPMs, Goldmans of the world, from the the super regionals that you just kind of mentioned.
7: Yeah, quite a bit different, actually. I mean, you have, you know, in the case of J.P. Morgan, you have to realize that net interest income is only about 45% of total revenues. Everything else is capital markets and other non-interest income type items. So that, you know, that's a a much lower proportion than it is for regional banks, Uh, even a city up at 55%, 57%. Uh, So regional banks even even higher at three quarters in, in some cases. So, Uh, Yeah, you have to look at the underlying uh, income and uh, revenue distribution streams and and uh, and know that the uh, big tailwind of of higher interest rates is going to be a benefit.
1: Help us make some money, Stephen. Who's looking good right now?
7: Well, you know, clearly the regionals uh, I would favor a bit more over the investment banks, Uh, this. It's, it's hard to see a, a, an easy case for a revival uh, in either the third quarter or really, you know, this year in investment banking. You need a lot of things to, uh, you know, to, to come into the fray, more confidence in the economy, uh, you know, get that inflation issue out of the way, CEO confidence. Um, so, you know, I would, I would side towards those uh, banks that do have that big tailwind. Uh, and uh, Wells Fargo is, is one of them, a uh, pretty interest-sensitive uh, uh, type of bank. Um, PNC, U.S. Bank Corp, uh, Truist Financial. You know, so these are all uh, buys, buy-rated at Argus, and uh, names that we expect to, you know, kind of ride through this uh, benefit from that uh, tailwind of interest rates. And, you know, we haven't talked about credit quality, but that's obviously a big swing factor. Um, you know, if you look at JPMorgan Chase, they had uh, $1.1 billion of loss provisions. That was right in line uh, with the consensus. So, you know, not a lot of concerns uh, right now. They've talked a lot about the consumer Uh, about the condition of the consumer. They're not seeing a lot of strain uh, as yet, other than at the very low income levels. Uh, So I I think they're in, you know, we're in a good spot uh, here. And uh, it's going to be hard for the Fed to do that uh, soft landing, of course. Uh, And there could be more uh, stress on the consumer. But um, we think provisions are going to stay reasonable.
1: Good. Maybe a little bit of silver lining there. Right now, the consumer looks like they're holding up just a bit. That's some good news. We'll leave it there. We like good news. Steven, pleasure to have you on the program again. Thank you. Have a great day. Appreciate it. All right, on deck. We're not done. Our friend Jeff Kilberg is here. He's going to lay out not only today's trade, but where we're going and why he says that oils dip back below 100 will not last. Dow futures, they're up. We're back after this. All right, welcome, welcome back. Let's wrap it up now. We've got a big day taking shape for the markets. As we mentioned earlier, if you missed it, per Goldman Sachs, check this out. And this could be an RBI if we did one, but not today. About $1.9 trillion of options and options value are set to expire today. Nearly a trillion in SP 500 league contracts, about $400 billion in derivatives, the rest other stuff. Wow. Right now, Dow Futures up 90 points, but maybe it's going to get more bottles. Bring in Jeff Kilberg, Sanctuary Wealth Chief Investment Officer, CNBC contributor, and a guy that cut his teeth in the pits in Chicago in oil. I want to get to oil in just a bit, Jeff, but nearly $2 trillion in the value of options
8: expiring today, and the markets
1: seem pretty calm. What do you make of that?
8: You know, the markets are calm, Sully, but just like Motley Crue at Wrigley Field last weekend, Uh-oh. today is going to kickstart your heart because you do have... Nearly a trillion dollars in options rolling, and it is interesting to see the VIX. The VIX is under 30, therefore, not really revealing a lot of paranoia or nervousness, to your point. But today is a really fascinating day because we've had five down days in the SP 500. Here we are poised to potentially see what the consumer is gonna do in retail sales as well as consumer sentiment representing the University of Michigan. Last month, Sully chalked up the lowest sentiment we saw. 50, 50 was a number, and that's the expectation again this month. So it seems like the bar is quite low. And conversely, I still think the consumer is in some strength. But today's going to be a wild day. And you always see some type of pump fake when you see this options expiration.
1: All right. Well, you're, you're throwing out like Motley Crue songs. I'll, I'm going to I'll see and raise you here. Once bitten, twice shy, great white. I mean, people have gotten burned. They got burned last week by the market's head fake. What is going to be? the catalyst for these markets going forward. Maybe not today, maybe not even next week, but what's gonna be, what's gonna be
8: the turn, Jeff? Well, I, th- I think you have to realize that we're in a normalization process. I don't see the deterioration process, a lot of people are claiming when you hear the word recession. But What's interesting, we are seeing higher lows as we slowly inch forward here. We're seeing a lot of pricing, uh, price discovery, if you will, as we're trying to really get a feel for what the Fed's going to do. But what's interesting, no one's talking about that the Fed has to be considering what type of rate cuts they're going to have in 2023. So they're going to be prudent. That's why I think we have to really understand this next move, 75 basis points is baked But I don't see that September rate hike. I know the CME Group Fed Funds rate is pricing that in. But what's interesting, in the wake of J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley yesterday, there's no news shock there, Sully. Look at J.P. Morgan. When the 10-year note goes from 1.5% to 3.5%, were you surprised that loan origination was down 45%? The one silver lining yesterday in J.P. Morgan, as well as Morgan Stanley, is that trading was up 17% and 21% respectively. So the catalyst is that you have to remember volatility makes markets go down but also go up. So if we see earnings, yeah. yes, they are slowing. As long as we don't see earnings evaporating or disappearing, I think the market has the ability to go back up about 3 and 4%. We test yeah. that 50-day moving average.
1: You're an oil guy. We forget that. Where's oil going?
8: That's how you started it is. And look at oil and copper. Copper is really interesting. Dr. Copper has kind of given us an idea of where the market is going. Yes, we just saw GDP almost go negative for the first time in a very long time over in China, but that's due to the lockdown. So lock and step, we have seen oil come back down, but I think oil goes back above $100. $100 due to the fact that this global reopening, this demand, and we get some of these bears in the recessionary talk to fade a little bit as we see earnings seasons somewhat shine. So I see crude oil, I don't see demand walking away. We're going to see what President Biden and the administration can do from a supply perspective. But I do think the demand is still there. I think the consumer is strong. It's nice to be here in Chicago that a little bit of relief, a little bit of pain at the pump, which don't forget, Sully, that pain at the pump has been one of the biggest drivers of inflation.
1: At the Gurney Oasis, Jeff Kilberg. Appreciate it, my friend. Have a great day and a good weekend, Jeff. Thank you very much. All right, that's it for us here on Worldwide Exchange on a Friday. I'll see you at 6 p.m. tonight, part of a CNBC special hosted by our friend Courtney Reagan. But for now, Squawk Box is next. See you in about 11 hours. Have a great day. Squawk is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only